Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? My son has, he's gotten into sort of like the hacking side of things and he always wants to get around all of the restrictions we put on him. Like we have content restrictions, Mm -hmm. we have time limits Uh and I think he's just made it his mission. I mean, this is like the theme of his life. He has made it his mission to subvert the paradigm as my husband would say. And it's exhausting because all I can do is try to be like, 10 steps behind him and learn like, what's a VPN? That's what I right. was Googling yeah. this morning. I, so I think what he did is I think he installed a VPN to bypass the internet control that I have. Oh my God. And it somehow, how that relates to why I can't watch Genius. Genius. <laughs> I, I couldn't tell you, but I can tell you that if I, turn off the Wi-Fi, I can watch it on my cellular data. That is insane. Yeah, it's it's beyond insane. I, 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 and, you know, I like, I'm always on this thing where I'm vacillating between letting it go and just trying harder to, you know, impose the limit. I mean, you wouldn't, I wouldn't, before I had kids, I would not have imagined it was this hard to impose limits on people. You know, because you don't want them to not have what they want, right? Right. And and it's a real battle to, like, make myself give myself and my children limits. It's really hard. My God. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll, the other thing I'm stuck on is, like, maybe there was, okay, I think I'm, like, trying to figure out the thing, which is, like, I know what, I think I know what happened. So you have restrictions on content, uh, like, and I think, uh, genius, the Kanye trilogy, like completely has all those triggers in it. Like all the things are in it. There's sex, there's suicide. There's, there's, it's all the things you, I wouldn't want a susceptible teenager to watch. Right. Like just for various reasons, not, not for anything other than triggers. Right. So, um, like my nieces and nephew, same thing. So, okay. So then you set that, right. And you're like, no, no, but then the kid or anyone can get a VPN, which then resets, I think the con, but I think you're still on the, you're still, you're still on the content warning site, which is blocking genius for you from watching genius. That is a fucking, I mean, it's kind of genius in a way, but it's also <laughs> so infuriating. It's like, come on, dude, I'm just trying to watch my fucking Kanye West bullshit. It's literally just this race of like today right. I'm on top. And and then the next day it's like, oh my God, they, they, they run the show. I rem- I'll never forget. There was a scene in the first season of the Sopranos where Tony and Carmel are having a problem with Anthony yeah or maybe it was with the daughter uh, Meadow and they're in their bedroom and he goes if she finds out we have no power we're screwed and I laughed it was the time I had watched it after I had teenagers you know like that's what it is we actually have no power and yet 
the 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 con that we're forced right. to do is pretend like right. we have all the power it's it's, it's like crazy such a metaphor also for life about like my mom's friend sent me something that said you know i i forget it was like her friend had passed away and it's not fair and it's not fair. And, and it isn't. And and that's the thing. Like the truth is not fair. Like it sucks, but like, and, and we pretend that things are fair because if we don't, it's absolute chaos. Like if we didn't pretend really that red means stop and green means go, we'd have a real fucking problem. If we all rebelled and said, you know what, fuck you. (laughs) Green means go and red means stop. And we all sent a mass media thing around. It would be chaos. It would be chaos. Hey, let me run this by you. The bus. And I guess that's just the headline right there. That's like the headline in the story. Like you took the bus from LA to San, to San Fran because gas is so expensive. Well, you many know. things. Okay. So okay. driving, it's really a grind on the five coming home, especially it's like so rough. Like it can be a nine hour instead of five, five six hour situation. It's crazy. Cause the five sucks. So, um, so that was the first like and then gas. So I wasn't going to drive because I did the drive Thanksgiving and it was like, oh God. And then, um, so I was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll just, um, I, I, I'll fly. But then I'm afraid to fly, even though the flight is literally 45 minutes. And then I was like, okay. But then because of gas, I said, okay, I'm going to just get my balls in a, it, I'm going to build up my balls <laughs> and I'm going to fly. But then because of gas, you know, duh, jets use gas fuel. The, the flights really went up to San Francisco. Usually you can get a flight for a hundred bucks uh, on Southwest round trip, like 120. No, no, 220. So I'm like, ah, oh, no. So then I say, okay, well, I'll take my Amtrak, of course, which is actually what I what I looked at first. But the track, um, it is a beautiful ride. It takes forever, but it goes up the coast and it's gorgeous. And you can like bid to get a, a fancier room. Yes, whole, right. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, well, the track's being repaired. So then you'd have to take a Greyhound. I'm not taking a Greyhound. So then I was like, okay, well, I'm going to take a fancy bus. And it's a Flix. Oh, have a fancy bus. Yes, okay. Flix bus. Flix. And Flix is big in Europe. And they're charter buses. And they have bathrooms. And it's like assigned seating. And I bought two seats because I was like, fuck you. And yes, um, yeah. it's so inexpensive. But still, listen, I just, you know, and I worked. My dad was an addict. I I have food addict issues. Um, I get addicts. So don't come, people don't come at me for saying this, but the bus is a place where heroin heroin addicts thrive. (laughs) Like that. What is the heroin addict doing on the bus? Nodding out. So there's two, there was a a couple and I was like, oh, these are heroin addicts. They just looked so like their luggage was all fucked up. They couldn't barely get on the bus. They were fighting young people, LA style tattoos. Fine. I have tattoos. That's not the thing, but it was like this very specific look, thin, bedraggled, um, but not 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 a curated look like more of a like i'm just <laughs> fucked up uh inappropriate clothing for the weather like big although in san francisco it was cold maybe they knew something i didn't know but they had like heavy coats on it's like 90 degree all their shit right like they're you know i've got one little carry on they've got like bag like big things okay and that you can check but you have to pay more for it and their suitcases are falling apart okay fine 
but they have cell phones, which is so, but a lot of people have cell phones. I mean, I, I, I'm always shocked when people have cell phones that look like they shouldn't. I'm like, what, how do you maintain that? But anyway, so they get on and immediately they sit in the, they got the seats in the way back, which is like a little bigger, but also you're by the bathroom's gross, but they just nod out immediately. They get on and like mid mid fighting, they just like pass out. And I'm like, oh my God, like nod out, like out. And then don't wake up until we get there. Like literally it's an eight hour ride. They don't get up at all. Wow. They'd probably been awake. Yeah. Or I guess maybe not. No, I don't know how heroines. it works with the heroines. Well, it depends. Like I mean, it, not it, the heroines. That's my new band name. That's our new band name, the heroines. That yeah, makes on two levels. Yeah, yeah. Hey. Yeah, that's pretty good. That was good, yeah. Gina. Um, okay, so um, no, for me and my 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 clients were a lot of them on heroin. And what would happen is like you can't always get heroin, right? Because it's expensive and because I mean it's cheaper than whatever, but it's expensive. And then, so you go without it and you start to detox and then you're up, you can't sleep, you're a mess. And then when you finally score again or whatever, get your heroin, then you just feel great for about half an hour and then you pass out. It's just so, it's such a waste, but okay. It's a process. You know, although I would never want to be a heroin addict, I will say something like what's occurring to me as you're talking about this couple is like, you know how with addicts, their life is very focused around just scoring or whatever. So to be able to have your life goals in these little chunks is really appealing to me. Yeah, like, well, it's a very, very, very specified genre. It's a small world, in. right? You make, I think when you're a heroin addict, you must have a really small world. And and your objectives are like, get score, That's find it. a place to sleep. And don't get arrested. To, and don't, and get, don't get arrested. Like there's something... And I, I'm sorry to be cheeky about it because people have really suffered with heroin addiction. I, I, I'm not suggesting that people, anybody should be a, an addict. I'm just saying like the idea. Yeah, to you. It's like, yeah. me too, me too. Actually, even just the other day I was thinking, I was watching somebody who had what, what I imagined was probably a minimum wage job. And I don't remember what the job was now. But I just, I was looking at the person doing their tasks and I was thinking, yeah, that maybe I should get a job yeah. like that, you know, I'll, and then 30 seconds in, I'm really trying to imagine myself. And I'm like, what, what, am, I, what am I talking about? Oh. People don't love working at McDonald's. People oh. don't love, you know, whatever. I've cleaning had like the 40 of those jobs. And I will, yeah. t- in, in adulthood, in 30-dumb, in 40-dumb, like the last one I had at that fucking donut shop, I was like, oh, this seemed quaint. The chef was a jerk. I got in like a fight with the, the chef was so rude. Like here I am 42, right? Or 43 or something. And I was working at this place in Rogers Park for like cash only under the table. Owned by these two youngsters. They, whatever, their business was working. But like the fucking chef was like talking shit about me. Like it. Is that a donut chef? No. <laughs> <laughs> No, they also serve sandwiches. That's brilliant. Okay. That's brilliant. But it I was, was thinking to myself, like, do you have to be a chef to no, make no, donuts? Yeah. I mean- yeah, no, that's hilarious. But she was like, or they were, they were talking shit about me. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. And I was basically like volunteering there. I I, I, right, I was right. so outraged. I was like, what? This person. You got to write an essay about that. You got to write an essay about your donut shop stint. 
Oh, I will. And I want to name names. They were fucking assholes. And also they like when I went to confront the person, like I was like, okay, like when you walk behind someone, you're supposed to say behind. Right. But if you've never worked in the restaurant industry, that does not come naturally. And also I'm really fast moving. So like I just she goes, you have to say behind. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to fucking kill you. And then she would (laughs) under her breath talk shit to me about to the other people. And so and so. I finally, you get them, you get them every time this way. So I pulled the owner aside and I was really upset, like crying because I, she was treating me like shit. And I said, listen, what the fuck is this? And then the next, the person wanted to, and then that the owner was like, look, this lady's doing us a favor by working here basically. Cause we have no one and she's working under the table. So then the, the, the person wanted to talk to me, the chef. And I talked to her. I'm like, what the, f-? she goes, I'm sorry. Is if I come off a little, I go, oh no, no, you don't come off. You are. And I said, I, I don't know what's happening here. I'm like, just trying to do my job and go the fuck home and make my money to pay my cell phone bill, bitch. Like I was so right. mad. And then I yeah. quit. And I just quit. I was like, fuck yeah. all y'all. So no, it, it sounds really quaint, which is why I fucking get those jobs. And then you get in there and you're like, oh, this is hell on earth. Oh God. I, I am sure it was. I, so I don't, believe it. Don't do it. Yeah. No, no, I will. I will not do it. It just, it just periodically, it just occurs. Of course, to me because there's a set, set, set of tasks. The yes. people, no one, um, you, I imagine that no one is like on their high horse. No, no. People are still on their fucking high horse in minimum wage jobs. There's a hierarchy right. of fucking assholes anywhere you but then I did get to watch the third episode of the Kanye documentary. Oh and okay, well, I didn't finish it though. I'm only like 20 minutes into it. It's so sad, right? It's gonna well, go, it's gonna turn itself. It it does, but in also in an unexpected way. What I will say, I think we should talk about the third episode next time. Okay. But okay. the first two for me, fucking amazing in the storytelling. Regardless of how I feel about Kanye West, which I don't feel any kind of way other than, I mean, I just, I'm talking about the, the, since we're about to make a documentary, right? Like I'm looking at, I love the first two. I love Cootie's filmmaking in the first two episodes. It then takes a turn on the third, but like the first two are so, um, uh, packed with information and visuals and and um, storytelling, like uh, I loved it. You and you also get a he such a great job of like showing a slice of time, you know, uh, and 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 all the characters in it and the real life people we know and get glimpses of. And I just thought, and uh, uh, for me, the most moving part of it. I mean, I have a lot of feelings about Donda and Kanye's relationship and Donda herself. Um, I have a lot of diagnoses for both of them, but I'm not, you know, like, I feel like she's got bipolar. Like, I think there's a whole thing going on there. But what I found, I've never, I have um, never been so moved for, for the hustle and the perseverance of a human being and the just sort of neutral an unwavering, we know it's not really true, but like they're like, but the unwavering, what I saw was an unwavering, unshakable, almost naive belief in oneself. This is what I wanted to talk to you about. This is what I wanted to run by you because the, the connection between <clears throat> talking about the, me working on the documentary and, and this, 
A, I agree with you. Cootie is an amazing documentarian and we could totally learn a lot from the way that he weaved his own personal story into the, his relationship with this, you know, mega personality. But yeah, you know, the scene where he's talking to a bunch of kids and he's, he's talking about self-confidence. I mean, he, he, he has a point, you know, what, what should you, you create an amazing piece of art and somebody compliments you on it and you, you're supposed to pretend like you're, don't you all, you don't agree that it's, that it's amazing. You know, like there's something to be said for that. And there's something to be said for what you're just describing the unshakable confidence, but I want to hear what your thoughts are about their relationship. So, um, it was, um, interesting to watch the process of what I would call a simultaneous process of infantilizing him as well as idolizing him, as well as parentifying him, as well as um, believing in him. It's a combo platter. And I believe from watching her and watching what I noticed in her, her mannerisms and his, that I think they both had a mania thing going on like in her mm. eyeballs so i have become really yeah. good at looking at people's eyeballs and i notice in the documentary as it goes along when kanye is manic his voice goes up in pitch and his eyeballs look different and she had this eyeball situation which is this sort of darty um um, desperate eyeballs. And I noticed it in my clients all the time. And I'd be like, Oh, they're manic. They're manic. It's not. Mm. And, and it's like hypomania. It's not for, for her, but like, I saw that in her and I was like, Oh, like what's happening? Where am I going? What's happening? Who can I? Okay. Mm. And, and, uh, and covered with a bit of like, you know, um, self-help you can do it -ness and, perseverance but it's it's all a combo platter but that's was my take what was your, on their relationship was like a i need you you need me what's happening i'm worried about you but i'm gonna then hope that by by really pumping you up that i'm gonna pump up the mental illness away mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah well i i agree with what you say about the their relationship their dynamic and it makes sense that yeah maybe she had a touch of the bipolar too um what i was thinking about it is and like i say i haven't gotten through the third episode but what i was thinking is it's so evident how meaningful their relationship was to both of them but in this case for for him and that he could just maybe spend the rest of his life chasing yep. that relationship um, chasing a woman who will fawn over him the way that she did. Um, I mean, really what he, it seems like what he needs is a person who kind of views it as their sole purpose in yes. life yes. to, to, to support his genius, yes. which is why he probably makes a terrible partner. Yes. But that the, she gave him like this, the, like a, she was mainlining love to yes. him. Yes. Yes. And, you know, he's unlikely to find that yeah. anyplace else, right, right? Right. But he's still looking, I think, right. is what, well, what that comes and, to. And then 
it's really interesting. So like Cootie gave up his whole life too to follow him. And it wasn't enough. Like it, it, it becomes not enough. And then when the person literally is removed by death, then what do you do is what we're seeing in, in the documentary. But like the it's it's a um it's it's so fucked up because I I feel like from watching from the outside, she must have felt like she was his only hope, right? Which is in, in which okay, which I'm sure is part, it's part he of. He was her only hope. No, or she was. She was. She was like, I'm my son's only advocate, right? My own. His it. only hope for love and happiness comes from me, ultimately. And whatever went down in his childhood, I have to make up for it. Whatever all the with the other all the mothers stuff happens, right? Um, I can imagine. And then it's like, yeah it sets him up to be like you said chasing that the rest of his entire life and she's not going to be around forever and she did the best she could and she did so much compared to what a lot of people do and he's it's just it, it, you throw in mega stardom in there and it is a recipe yeah. for absolute meltdown and actually, it really relates to the thing we were talking about when we started talking today, which is about limits and limit setting. And I think I mentioned to you that I'm also reading this book um, about Sandy Hook conspiracy and the, the straight line between Sandy Hook conspiracy and the January 6th yep. in, insurrection. But in the part of the book where they're talking about Adam Lanza and his mother, I hadn't heard this before, that you know, he, he, he'd been flagged in the psychiatric system, you know, going back since he was a young boy. And I don't know why she opted out of treatment for him. But what I do know from this book is that what she strove to do was keep meeting his needs wherever they were. Yep. But because he was so mentally ill, his needs were things like when he had his, um, uh, intake at Yale, the clinician noted that he said to his mother, you need to stand with no part of your body touching the wall. And that she just did it. And that at home it had gotten to, there was things he couldn't have cooking odors, uh, curtains, doorknobs. Yeah. And she just kept meeting the need. And this was something that I really relate to. Hopefully I have <laughs> going off the rails like that. But you, when your child is suffering and what they're telling you is, I want this thing. The, the decision to say, I know better than you. You think you want this thing, but that is not the right thing for you. And for that child to be screaming in your face or not, but, you know, with all of their energy, right. all of their conviction, they're coming at you saying, no, this with my kids, it's the screens. No, I need my screen time. And I'm going, yeah, but you, you can't know what I know, which is that you, it's not good for you. It's simply not good. And it's just so hard to tolerate when your child is enraged or hurt by you suffering the suffering yeah. and so nobody yeah. set any limits for kanye and he's 
now floating like a balloon in the ether, right? Well, yeah, it's it's really bad. He's now he's now has restraining orders, and now he's got um, the Grammys said he can't perform there. So now the limits are being imposed oh, that are huge, okay. and I don't know what's going to happen. And I also, from working in Hollywood, what I noticed was it is so easy when you have money and power yeah to to develop a team that will will do what you're saying that that Adam mm-hmm. Lanza's Mrs. Lanza Miss Lanza did it's so mm-hmm. easy to have that bought and built in mhm and i will tell you this uh, my one of my very most successful treatments that i did when i was a private practice therapist is i treated somebody with very very severe borderline personality disorder. And it was the kind of situation where the client would quit all of the time, you know, quit, quit therapy. And then then you would do this dance of like, they, you know, they don't really mean it. So you don't, you don't give up their appointment time because they're going to show up. Sometimes they're going to show up and act like nothing happened. Like they never said they were going to quit. So with this one person that I've been working with for a really long time, and we had a good relationship, which, which is to say, yes, she was very, very sick and she was very, very difficult, but also she had so many great qualities yes. that it kept me like, it kept sure. me really invested in her. But the 50th time or whatever it was that she quit after I, she was also in this group that I was running and she like got violent sure. in the, in the group and left and whatever. Anyway, this time around, when she quit treatment, I said, okay, we're done now. And then she showed up for her next appointment. And I said, no, we're, we're done now. And that precipitated a year-long hospitalization for her. But this person is now doing amazing. Honestly, and I knew in her family dynamic, her parents were afraid to set limits with yep. her because she was a very, very strong yes. personality, but it was only through the limit setting and it had to go all the way to oh the end, my God. right? For her and, and to, to reject and decry and, and be victimized and blah, blah, blah. For then her to like follow her dream, oh go to God. this college. She, she, I can't say what it is, obviously, but she has a job that was the job of her dreams and that she learned, she only discovered was the job of her dreams in treatment and oh that she could have God. only gotten to do after having really had to contend with actually living with the limit. Today on the podcast, we are talking to Josh Sobel. Josh is graduating this year with his MFA in directing from Cal Arts, and he formerly had a whole career in Chicago as artistic director of The Haven in Chicago. And he has a lot of interesting insights about his um, experience of being uh, in school again after having already well launched into his career. So please enjoy our conversation with Josh Sobel. 
Josh was just yeah. explaining that Cal Arts is, I was saying, is it a conservatory? And he was saying it's an art school in the truest sense. So go ahead yeah. and repeat what you're saying. And yeah, so like Travis, who's an alum of like Yale back from the Robert Brewstein days of Yale, um, he he's like, look, Yale School of Drama is always considered like, ooh, Yale School of Drama. But he's like, with it, if you think about it within the larger Yale structure, you've also got like the business school and like you've got the journal, you've got the medical school, you've got all these things. So like within the theater universe, it's huge, but within the structure of the university, it, mm -hmm. Yale, you know? And so the beauty of CalArts in a way is that it exists outside of that larger sort of academic structure. It isn't part of a university. It is an art school with a theater department. And there's something that that is really freeing, honestly, about that, and and the CalArts in particular sort of leaned into, in terms of its sort of generative and and experimental sort of bend. It's it's been yes. an interesting experience. Yeah, please. So, Gina Bridget went there. Quibido. Yes, yeah, that's yeah. what I was saying. I think so she's the only have... other Cal uh, CalArts alum we have had on. What? And it's funny because you mentioned they were an acting alum, and the acting program I have to say is in particular fascinating and unique and i love it because unlike a lot of programs i've encountered and i've like taught in academia a little bit before i went in before i started as a student in it it's like very few programs encourage teach and want their actors to be generative artists in their own right and bring that to the table in the room and honestly as a director i'm like it's a gift it is such a goddamn gift in terms of the collaborative process. Like I, I can sometimes when I'm hitting my own moment, like really feel comfortable being like, I need like a physical gesture representing a panic attack in slow motion that moves across the stage this way. Take, third, take 30 minutes. Here's some music and an object. Oh Go. my God. That and sounds like, like the greatest thing I've ever heard. The, I, I did something similar with the, a particular actor in my thesis show, thesis show, quote unquote, and like, she killed it. Oh my God, Avalon Greenberg call. She's about to graduate from the BFA program and she's in, or in a couple of years and she's incredible. But like, she ran with it. And these actors are sort of prepared to take that and like, just make shit and be like, is this what it is? What does it need? And then I can sit there and like sculpt. We can then like work together to be like, ooh, let's expand that moment out. Let's tighten that bit. And we're then working collaboratively on this oh other god, thing. Oh my god, that sounds so amazing, Josh! Like, like I, 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 I do this every time yeah. we talk to someone that I really like and I like their vibe and what and I like how they're talking about their education. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna apply there. And then I remember <laughs> that I did apply to CalArts for undergrad, and I got a callback, which was like the greatest thing because I was a terrible actor. And I, like, in the truest sense, like what you're talking about, I would have been like. Uh, so, so, um, I am so, I am so glad to talk to you because I, when you say things like that about how you direct as well, and I'm not a director, G Gina directs, I don't direct, but like, I want to work with someone who says shit like that. Well, I, I really, I don't know. It's funny. I, you know, outside of like grad school, when I was in undergrad, I went to undergrad to, at Oberlin college, which is really sort of a diamond in the rough school for theater it's like and it's a lot of obies do well out there and it's weird because it's like it's not known but it's really good um but while i was there i also did a semester at the o'neill um and i don't know if you're familiar with the national theater institute yeah, yeah. so i i did fall 2007 and like 
I really lucked out. My partner and I were a year apart, actually, before we ever met. Weird, small world. But we both lucked out because we got there right at the time as this particular artistic director was there, uh, Michael Cadman, who is uh, an alum himself of the Royal Shakespeare Company. And, like, he understood ensemble. It's funny because I always, like, one of my, I love Chicago and I miss Chicago so much. But one of my, like, little gripes with Chicago is that the word ensemble gets thrown out a lot. Yes. And I I have a very particular opinion about that because it's like, I think ensemble sometimes is just meant to mean or thought to mean like a collection of actors, you know, or the company members, you know, the, the Steppenwolf ensemble or the Straw Dog right. ensemble or whatever. And I'm like, ensemble is a value, I think. Ensemble is is... Some it's about how one sits in the middle of a collaborative process. It's about how the threads are drawn, not even just in the actors. It's about how the threads are drawn outside to stage management, to producing, to designers, to everything. Like, and we're all coming together to sort of generate something together, right? Like that's ensemble. And Michael understood more than anyone I've ever met in my life, like how to nurture, how to build, how to find the ensemble impulse in people. And he would just build semesters of young students and, and sort of demonstrate that for, for four months. And yeah, that's sort of been a foundational thing from that point forward. So I'm, I'm always ready to like chill for the O'Neill. Like I love the, I love the O'Neill. Yeah, I actually live kind of near, near. Oh there. really? I, I live yeah. in Connecticut, yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. So you just, made me think about something has any group of theater artists ever called the ensemble also the the whole entire staff like everybody on crew because it is such a group effort and we as act this is one of the big things about you know when you go into an acting program you just and maybe it was just me but you just think like it's all about this it's all about the actors and you just think everybody else is there supporting right. what you're doing <laughs> well and it right treats it like a, it treats it like a technical term right it's like it's a category and rather than like no it's actually about an energy it's about a trust it's about something else and i will say to answer your question like that when i was a straw dog ensemble member that that was one of the things i loved most about being on the straw dog ensemble was you had designers you had managers you had people like from every aspect of the creative process sort of understood as part of the ensemble. It was all framed that way. It's interesting. Yeah. Like, I, I feel like what uh, uh, happens maybe is like, so take Steppenwolf because everyone talks about Steppenwolf as the uh, original ensemble, which really you're right. A uh, side note t tends to mean in Chicago. And I could say this cause I'm from there means that nobody is prettier or more famous than another actor. Like that's what they mean by ensemble. <laughs> Like, that's how people talk about that. They're like, no, this is an ensemble piece, meaning that even though you're really pretty, you're not going to be the star, like to someone. They never say that to me. You know what I mean? Okay. But anyway, side note, but ensemble. So when it's interesting because it's like when a theater gets bigger, meaning a broader audience, more money, I feel like there becomes a really clear delineation between technical staff and the actors and it comes becomes compartmentalized probably because they have to run a freaking business 
with a multi-million dollar budget as we're like straw dog like you can kind of stay it's like that storefronty kind of you can really get in there which is how steppenwolf started so i think what we're talking about is the capitalization of theater I mean, which is a whole other always <laughs> i mean honestly always all the time uh, but but yeah, but I'm I'm curious about um and Gina, did you say I didn't? Name? I'm so sorry. Oh, okay. I forgot to say, Josh Sobel, congratulations! You're surviving yeah. theater school. You're almost done. Yes. Thank you. Art school, theater school. You yeah. know, it's oh, all yeah. the thing. Yeah. But yeah, so um, I wanted to ask. I, I guess take it back before we, uh, I get on the runaway train of like, did you start out as a direct? Like, were you an actor? What's what was your path to this school of Cal Arts? I guess. Uh, um, I've, I've been a director most of the time. I, I of course did a little bit of, I actually got rather late. Like I'm not one of those people who was like really involved in a lot of theater when I was really, really little, but I had sort of a formative experience in high school as an audience member. Um, my school, um, was really remarkable. I, I unfortunately should catch up with them and see what they're doing in their theater department. But at the time, like we were a high school that was doing like Ionesco and Tom Stoppard and shit. Like mm -hmm. it was pretty cool. Um, I assistant directed Rhinoceros my senior year of high school. Like, wow, I mean, that's uh, cool. Steve Angle. Where did you? Where were you? Rochester, New York, Brighton High School. Mm. Shout out to Steve Angle, Mr. Angle. He was incredible. He also was the Mr. AP Lit teacher Angle. and ran an incredible AP Lit class. Like, oh my God, we we read and watched just incredible stuff. Um, and so his show but he was one of the other directors there did chorus line they and they did like an unedited chorus line in high school which i also very much admired um and paul's monologue hit me like when i don't know how familiar you are with with the show but like uh you know it's a classic broadway 1970s it was sort of groundbreaking at the time because it was all real interviews of people who were all fighting oh chorus line i'm oh, sorry no, chorus I line. I, yeah yeah I'm oh no chorus line yeah yeah yeah, line. yeah yeah chorus line okay. yeah Paul's monologue when he sort of finally breaks down and tells the story about his his parents meeting him at the drag show in the back of the oh yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. yes 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 I lost it like I was a weeping mess I don't know and I had not had that particular experience before and I walked out and I remember going home nerdy like misfit fucking high school student hadn't found themselves yet and was like I feel different I don't know how, I don't, I can't quantify it, but I feel like I am moving through the world differently than I was before I had that experience. Wow. I want to do that. <laughs> and that was, that was the moment. And so I, you know, started auditioning a little bit, but I, I always got interested in directing because I, it was the idea of like creating that holistic experience for an audience member the way it was created for me. And so we also had, I think it was like an official partnership, like you could license uh, with the 24 hour plays in New York. So my high school did the 24 hour plays every year. And so I would stay overnight at the fucking school and, uh, and, do, and direct. And that was sort of my first directing experience. And I was terrible, God. And my first <laughs> few shows, my first few shows at Oberlin were terrible um why why oh my god uh too in my own head i'm i'm still too in my own head it's for the main thing i'm working on i'm a very cerebral artist and that's not necessarily a bad thing i just am seeking balance that's part of the reason i went to cal arts and cal arts was actually really the right choice for that in a lot of reasons um to sort of break down some of my more cerebral and rigid habits 
Um, but I just didn't like, I, I was in my own way. It was that classic, like my insecurity. I was second guessing. I was, it was actually Michael Cadman. It was the O'Neill that was the turning point of that as well. So like I, anyways, I went through high school, got into it, went to Oberlin, was sort of jumping between theater and film, got focused in theater because I liked the linearity of the process. It just fit my brain better. Um, you could really build the dominoes in order and watch them fall. And I love that from a process standpoint. Oh, it's joy. Um, and so I went to the O'Neill and I was still like, I was overthinking and I was over like complicating and convoluting. And it was uh, Michael Cadman, who on the final day of the program, I was like, you asshole, you couldn't have said this to me like weeks ago. On the final day of the program was like, you're very, very smart. Stop trying so hard to prove it. Ah. And that was that was another game changing moment for me. And I, I started sort of stepping back and letting myself have more fun with it um, and just found myself sort of like, what were my passion projects? What were the things that made me feel the way I did a chorus line in a way? Um, and, uh, my first show back in undergrad was uh, cabaret. And that was, that was a, a really huge, huge show for me. And I was very proud of that show and still have, like, I watched the video sometimes and I was like, oh God, those transitions fucking suck. But, like, but yeah, directing, directing has always been sort of my thing because of that idea of like, I get to sort of, I don't know. I, I it's funny because so many people think about directing in this very hierarchical standpoint, right? Like they like the sort of like top down, they get to sit at the head of the thing and create their vision. I I challenge that constantly. And it's funny because people think by challenging that you give up the sort of directorial authority. I call bullshit. I I'm interested in what I like to refer to as horizontal hierarchy. Um, oh. And it's not, I say I refer to it. I didn't invent the phrase, but like I've, I've okay. sort of taken it and, and I really love applying it to collaboration. I like the idea that as the director, I'm sort of sitting in the middle on the same plane as everyone else, surrounded by all of these brilliant fucking artists. And I get to be like, ooh, yes, it's a bit of that. It's not quite that. Can we bring it over there? Ah, yes, let's bring that in and pulling all of it towards the middle. And I still get to by virtue of being in the center of it all, just make decisions. I get to make be the arbiter of the quote unquote vision or whatever you want to call it. But it's not, it, it breaks down the hierarchy in a way. I'm not above anyone else. It doesn't have to be my idea. It has to be the coolest idea. And so by sitting in the middle of it, I just get to sort of help tie the threads together in a way that feels like the audience experience we're going for like that's my job to god interesting you know? so it's so oh, yes and i'm so curious as to uh why more directors don't do a horizontal is it just an ego thing a horizontal in my personal opinion <laughs> yeah yeah i think there's a lot of Fear. There's a lot of like, I'm, I'm not even going to call it insecurity because I actually think that doesn't do it justice and I think is too easily dismissible. I think it's fear. I think there's a lot of fear. I mean, if I'm really frank, I'm confronting it in certain areas of my program right now.
Okay, so wait. So you're saying that I just want to reiterate for my own brain because this happens all the time in all organizations across Mm -hmm. the board. Mm -hmm. So I'm really, and we're like, we were talking about it yesterday, sort of. Mm. So, so you, 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 um, there is an atmosphere of like, we want to make change, right? There's a a stated, a stated goal, stated, right? Not an atmosphere. Okay. So a stated goal, which a lot of theaters that I'm familiar with and institutions are making these statements right now that the statement on paper or on the web or wherever is saying, we want to take your feedback and make change. And it usually revolves around the word change. Like we're open to change. And or. But but here, if we're always, if we're honest, nobody is fucking open to change. We fucking hate it. And that's what we're talking about. It's the same fear to me. It's the same fear that you find in directing. It's the fear of some some kind of loss of authority it's a fear yeah. of some kind of loss of control yes. it's a fear uh i don't know and and it's so funny like all of the ways you encounter it because then yeah you go and you actually say here's the thing and like i did this recently and i got yelled at i got and again i've been i've been working in chicago theater for a decade before this sure. so i don't give a shit i was an artistic director right, right? like i was artistic right. director of haven chicago i don't like this is I don't need your ego. So like, it was actually kind of fun. Um, I think whether it's directing, whether it's artistic directors and institutional leadership, whether it's corporate leadership, whether it's, it's all of this. It's, it's, it's a well, fear it's, that, that somehow it, you're going to lose your okay, control. This is, this is so classic yeah. in, in terms of, so Gina and I were both therapists for years and look, and Obviously, we were children of parents. So I would go to my mom and say, this is the exact same thing. I would go to her and say, hey, mom, you're pretty abusive uh, verbally. And, and she would say, but I'm the best mom I know how to be. And at least you're not being beaten like I was beaten. And I'm like, okay, yes, true. That All that is true. I And you're still abusive yeah. to me. You're hurting me. And, and whether or not you want to make changes, that's the thing. So we, we are literally reenacting parent child relationships in every walk of life. Like this sounds like a conversation a a kid might have with their father where the father is like, well, I provide, we, we're great. And you're like, yeah, "Yeah, but. And it's not about perfection. Like, it's not about like everyone understands, like we're all human beings, right? Like I I never wanted to feel like, and that's sometimes my problem with like, like I'm, I'm as left to center as you can get in a lot of ways, but it's like my one problem with sometimes a lot of left wing stuff is where it's like, I think there is a purism that sometimes gets into it. And it's like, no, like we're all fucking human beings, right? If we believe in the ability to change and and restorative justice and all of these things, then we have to actually believe that people can improve and get better. But it's like, there needs to be that honest interest in improving and getting better. There needs to be that genuine interest in it. And it's like, it's one of the things I was really proud of that we built at, at Haven in Chicago. Was Such like, a great theater. Gina, oh, Haven is amazing. Okay, We're going to be there that. in the summer. So maybe Are, we'll check it. Yeah, yeah. Ian Martin, like, it's so funny. Cause it was such a, it was also a gift to really be able to do a transition process with Ian, you know, cause we really tried to be in, I've been part of some really unintentional transition processes. So like, there were a lot of reasons where I really felt like Ian was exactly like, not, it wasn't even about sustaining what Haven had been doing. It was about how do we build and evolve on what Haven had been doing. And so Ian was sort of perfect. And we built the structure that you don't see very often where I 
he was, or yeah, he was my art, my associate artistic director for half the final season. And then we switched and he became artistic director and I was his associate artistic director for the other half of the season. So he could have the responsibility and be in the decision-making position, but have the institutional memory sort idea. of right at hand. Yeah. And then it's like, and then I step away. Um, right. So like, I bring that up because there was an intentionality that we tried to bring to like, if we're going to be a theater company, let's be a theater company. Like you mentioned the business, like let's, let's try to be a business, but let's try to be a next generation business. <laughs> and by the way, statements, statements are to change as, you know, sex is to relationships. Like yeah. it's a good start, but like you have to do more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, exactly. So I guess the question is, what is it for me, for me anyway, what is it in you, Josh, that is the kind of person, because what is it? And there's a reckoning, obviously, that I talk about a lot in, in terms of American theater and theater in general in the movie industry, a, a reckoning that's coming or in, is, is that part of your drive right now to do this? Or it sounds like you've always been this sort of way, but why the fight? What, what, what about the fight? I mean, why I fight? Mean, yeah, I think, I, I think, I think it's, God, that's such an interesting question because it's making me think in a chicken egg way. Like, is my ethics and my politics like inherent? Like, I don't know. It, the weirdest thing just came to mind, and I'm going to follow that impulse. Great, do it. Um, and forgive me if I get a little bit emotional right now. Uh, it's uh, it's my dad. If I'm really being honest. Um, my dad is actually, a, he's not in the arts, but he's very artistic. He's a cellist. He's a musician. It's his aunt, actually, if you go to the Den Theater in Chicago, yeah, uh, where Haven, is, the, the space that Haven exists in is the Bookspan Theater. Actually, it's specifically the Janet Bookspan Theater. Janet Bookspan is my aunt, his sister, who was a major uh, opera uh, director, vocal coach, teacher, performer, actor, assisted Hal Prince back in the day. Like, Holy shit. Yeah. So like, and I have it on my mom's side as well. Uh, but my mom actually is an artist. She's a painter, but my dad, my dad is a radiation oncologist. He's a cancer physician. Um, but music and art has always been a very big part of his life, his family, my life. Um, he actually, uh, uh, Sidebar, because this is just a fun thing, and I hope this gets included because I love bragging about this. My dad, talk about politics and, and art colliding and art at creative ethics. My dad has always been a big fan of Dr. Seuss's The Sneetches. Uh, this exists. You can go online. It's amazing. I'm so inspired by this. Um, he was part of the Rochester Academy of Medicine, and they have this amazing old building that has a room that was basically, it's like a mansion that was donated. And it's got this room that was built for chamber music. And he developed relationships with the Rochester Philharmonic, developed friendships with musicians, and created basically a chamber trio to play at the Rochester Academy of Medicine. And through this, met a composer, a Spanish composer living in Berlin named Lorenzo Palomo, who's pretty, his music is pretty outstanding, um, and ended up commissioning a piece of music for this trio. And one thing led to another, and we found out that since my dad was young, he had believed that Dr. Seuss's The Sneetches was one of the most impactful, universal, and effective lessons about acceptance and like anti-racism uh that you could find and 
it was always his dream to have a piece of music a la Peter and the Wolf that was composed to be performed in tandem with a narration of Dr. Seuss's The Sneetches. Uh, so you can license this now on Music Theater International because he did it. He commissioned Lorenzo to compose a piece of music for Dr. Seuss's The Sneetches. Um, and we also, by hook or by crook, it premiered at my alma mater at Oberlin um, and has since played around the country, actually, and I believe internationally. And, uh, and it was all because he wanted to spread the message. It was because he wanted to use art to... Amazing. to create an anti-racist piece of art. Um, and uh, uh, the, the other cool thing is uh, through a connection with his niece who ran the Department of Cultural Affairs in Miami-Dade County, she had a connection to John Delancey, who you might know as Q from Star Trek The Next Generation, yeah. who did the original narration, the premiere. And so actually it's all on YouTube. You can hear John Delancey I'm doing yeah. Dr. Seuss's The Speeches. Um, and so like, that's an aspect of my dad right there. Another aspect was that, uh, I'll never forget this story. He actually built, he uh, in Clifton Springs, New York, uh, built a cancer center, uh, Finger Lakes Radiation Oncology, because there, you know, it, there was a large elderly in particular community out there, if I recall. And so, you know, as people are getting later in life, you know, biology happens. And access to cancer treatment was non-existent, except like 45 minutes or more, at least minimum drive out of the way, um, if not hours out of the way. And especially as you're getting older, that becomes less and less sustainable yeah. for radiation treatments, yeah. for chemo treatments, for all of these things. So he found funding and, and worked his ass off as I in, in some of my youngest days and built this cancer center from the ground up. And there was a day that I remember very distinctly hearing this story where, as we've all been in any doctor's office, uh, they were just running like, you know, three, four hours behind. And uh, sorry, I get emotional telling this story. It's so funny because it's like, that's that's my true north in a way, you know? Um, he, uh, he sent his technicians out. This was back in the day when like Rent-A-Center was still a thing and Blockbuster and shit. And like went out to get like, sent them out to get like a television, uh, sent them out to get a bunch of movies, sent them out to get like a sandwich platter and just showed up and basically were like, hey, we're sorry. We're, we know we're running behind. We just want you to know we haven't forgotten that you're here, oh, you know? Yeah. And like, when has that happened to the doctor's office? Right. Like when? Has that ever actually happened? Right. But that's my dad. Also, not for nothing, but my dad sold x-ray equipment. I've met a lot of radiation oncologists and it's very <laughs> unusual. <laughs> like there tends to be kind of a, a like personality a... type with people who go into radonc and it, it it's not that what you're describing. So your dad must be a really remarkable person. Uh, but yeah, no. And so I think it was a values thing. If we really want to talk about it, it's a values thing. It's, it's, it's a sense of how can we make this better? Like, how can we be people first? How can we, like, again, we talk about Haven, right? One of the things I used to say, and I, and I would try, I tried to work hard to embody was like, oh, uh, sorry, this does plug into our original conversation, just to bring it back, That's like fine. perfectly on topic. Uh, one of my first shows I did in Chicago, uh, I did a 
production of a play called The Xylophone West by Alex Lubisher, who's uh, becoming a I like Yeah, Alex yeah. is great. He's, he's rising really well. And like we, he was actually, when I was the associate director of the summer O'Neill program, he was a playwriting student when I was associate director and that was our first. So it's cool, just like as we've sort of grown together, it's been amazing. Um, and uh, we did a reading of it and I, we have very strong opinions, especially because of the O'Neill being sort of a hub of new play development about what new play development is. There's a lot of bad new play development. There's a lot of uh, bad talkbacks. There's there's a lot. Uh, of, and really, it comes down to the difference between responsive feedback versus prescriptive feedback and how to cultivate that. Oh. Um, uh, and understanding the difference. And these this artistic director did not understand this. Do you sure. like and when, similar to what we're talking about, we were like, hey, can we structure the talk back this way? Can we, this would really help Alex. Alex was saying, this would really help me like understand my play better. And artistic director's response was, I'll never forget this. Just remember who's the employer and who's the employee. Oh, right, right. Right? Right. Case in point to everything we're talking about. And so like, I sort of when I think about like the sort of challenge to sorry I completely lost my train of thought what was, no no what yeah. we're talking about is no no it's fine it's we're talking about a lot of things sometimes so that's okay what we're talking about is like this whole idea of like that your mentor wasn't your mentor anymore and why people don't want to change and the message yeah. versus what is actually yeah. happening in change yeah yeah I, I'm trying to remember why I specifically brought up xylophone west but it was like this idea oh. of uh I, I don't know. I think about this, this, I, oh, my, my dad, my values. Yeah. Value system. That's right. Thank you. I just need to hear value yeah. system. Yeah. It's a value system thing. It's like, that tells me what that person's value system is, right? That tells me sort of the culture that they build. And for me as at Haven, sort of taking a note from my dad, right? Hey, we yeah. recognize that you're here. We see that you're here. I, the way I would phrase that as an artistic director was like, yes, you are our employees. Let's be like, it, it's not that that isn't real. Like we are, you are signing a contract to work for us. We have expectations based on sure. that contract. You are also a guest in our home. And that is our responsibility. Like as the leadership, as a company, as an institution, as a director, like you are, you are a guest in our home. This is our home. We are responsible, especially if we want to talk about mentorship in academia. Some of us are paying fifty thousand dollars a sure. year, <laughs> right? To be in your home, like you have all of the control of this space. You can you can make this whatever you want it to be, uh. and and we're paying you to exist inside of it. And and it becomes a question for me of how do you take that responsibility, like whether if, whether it's an academic responsibility of like we are literally paying for the privilege of this, or in a professional standpoint where it's like it's it's a little bit in the reverse. Either way, it's like you are in the position of of power. You are in the position where you can like build culture. That I use that I find that word comes up a lot when I rant about this, which I rant about culture uh, building cult, culture building culture, whether it's academic, whether it's professional, like. That's the responsibility. And if you don't take that as the responsibility, it, it's... Uh, so, okay, the, the the other thing that I was going to say is you had a moment where... Yeah. Um, so I have these moments where I say 
to myself, usually not out loud, but you kind of almost said it out loud, um, but you didn't either, which is I say, my ma did not come to this country as an immigrant and work her ass off for this shit. And your moment was my dad did not build a fucking radiology oncology center and then get rent to center furniture and sandwiches for me to be doing this shit. Well, like that is that moment. Well, I think, well, that's what I heard. Yeah. Like there, everyone has a line and a, a true North of like, wait, wait, my legacy is not going to be this, is not going to be not saying anything to you. And and legacy is is something I think about sometimes, but it's like, it's not even about that per se. It's like, I see what it means to people, right? And like, if, if we believe in our own bullshit, <laughs> like, especially as artists, you know, because artists are, are at the forefront of talking a lot of shit about like empathy, right? About community, about humanity about seeing each other about uplifting each other about making the world a better place and it's like well that's all well and good but like are you like how and, and it's not even just like again like there's so many ways to do it but i think sometimes we take for granted the small ways of doing it i think sometimes ah. we take for granted the like what if we just buy everyone dinner what if we like make a concerted effort to pay people a little bit better like what if we what if we show our work in that like what if we actually believe in the transparency that we add like so much like we talk about transparency so much in our industry like or rather not in our industry i should say like artists talk about transparency in the world right like we want corporate transparency we want more governmental transparency we're some of the least transparent motherfuckers yeah ever yeah so and like, you know like, I, yeah. I i feel like i know why that happens in theater too it's you know it's because there's no money so everybody goes into it with all of their like very theoretical and ideological approaches and when you get very cerebral, very theoretical, you forget about things like, oh yeah, people don't want to do 10 out of 12s anymore because it's, it's, it's too fatiguing and it actually works against the thing that they're there to do, which is create a new, you know, each performance, like being able to offer something fresh each time. So it, it, it that is actually an area in which it's helpful to think about theater as a business because if this, if you were running a Seven Eleven and you had an employee, you'd have to have a bathroom. Like it's, you know, you, you just think about the the pragmatic things more when you're thinking about it as a business, right? And and it's like, I and for me, it's like a lot of these things are considered mutually exclusive for some, or they're treated as mutually exclusive. That like you have to, it's like the business and the sort of like cultural ethical side somehow don't mix. And I just don't agree. I don't agree for a lot of reasons. I don't agree in part through the Haven experiment, you know? I, 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 it's like, look, we were still not making time. And we, we, I wanna say we were very privileged to have particular financial support. I don't wanna take that for granted that we were not starting in the same place as a lot of other people. And I, and I don't take that for granted. It's not a brag, it's like, a, like the, the bootstraps myth. Like I wanna make sure that it's not like, you know, taken for granted, but it's also like, there's still this idea that people won't show up sometimes like that like literally i've had other artistic directors talk to me about haven work in chicago being like but are you sure there's an audience here i'm like motherfuckers we just sent like 15 people away at the door for isaac gomez's horror play that no one else would produce like like why what are we but it's and those decisions are made because of business right because because how are we going to sell it to chris jones because like how are we going to 
And I, I, we found time and time again that there is an audience for this work, that we were able to at times even make money on, like compared to what we, what our show to show budget were, we were able to make money back. Like, and we were paying people, you know, still stipends, you know, not what they're worth. I don't want to pretend we were ever able to pay people what they were worth, but we were able to pay people usually double the typical storefront stipend. It's like, and so, and still keep ourselves on a typical like budget that I was used to for other storefronts. So it's like, I, it's this question of like, why are these things treated as mutually exclusive? On a bigger scale, look at Center Theater Group right now. Uh, an article just got written. Um, I got to see Slave Play out here, which amazing production. Also, Chicago shout out. I got to see because he's understudying and I got to see him perform that night, Rashad Hall. Yeah, Fucking he's so brilliant. Brilliant. And his yeah, Philip, Rashad is brilliant. Oh my God. His Philip just broke my goddamn heart. Oh my God. He was yeah. so good. Um, that's a show that is deeply controversial, deeply challenging, queer, BIPOC sexual BDSM oriented racist, like, like race, racist or in terms of its, its topic matter, like racism in the United States. Um, and historically and today it's, it's, and they gave away like 5,000 or more like free and yeah. or discounted tickets and they still made money. Jeremy, he recently just put something up on social about this, that That's he, he made, he made accessibility, like the most important feature of his um, you know, this play being produced and it worked and it worked better still than when made you money. on the scarcity model, which is, I mean, that a lot of this just comes from the scarcity model yes. influencing how everybody feels so constantly afraid of losing the one little sliver of the pie that they have that, exactly. you know, all they can think about is how to make that tiny little sliver, how to divvy it up instead of saying, no, how can we get more pie? people we want more pie we want to just keep getting our tiny little slivers we want we, we want to add so i'm mindful of the time because i know like in oh, about yeah, 15 right. we're going to be having to wrap up and i want to hear about it's your last semester and you're working on a project and now you're going to have spring break next week what is your is it a thesis is that is that uh, that happened? that was actually last semester that was thinking the last oh, thing I did okay. last semester yeah that so that's done um i I kept myself a little bit busy. I don't know. I I found myself strangely, in spite of the pandemic last, maybe because of the pandemic last year, and now being back in in person and and all of that. I just, and also I think because of I like I, Fig was amazing, and like my designers were incredible. The students here are unbelievable. But it was also because of some of the things I shared, like an exhausting process. Excuse me. And so I sort of took a break, and then got into this semester and for some reason just was like, I want to make shit. I want to be involved in making shit. I want to, I want to be involved in my own shit. I want to get involved in other people's shit. I just want to make shit. And so I'm like, I just finished up working uh, on a collaboration with a doctoral student in the music school where we created a, I worked with a lighting designer and we worked collaboratively to create a light based sort of, design journey like a, a sort of light experience uh cool. built in conversation with the music called busking style in real time um uh as part of his doctoral thesis um 
And Wait, then, you're saying it was busking like that? The project was uh, the the style of of calling the lighting was. It wasn't like it, oh, it was sort of I like never heard that term before. Yeah, okay. yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, so oh it was God. a. a uh, board op up in the booth watching and listening for particular moments and the music was also highly improv the reason is because the the composition had moments of high improvisation so there were moments okay. where it was literally like just listening for certain things to shift the lighting wow. responsibly to the music that's as it cool. was happening that's um, so cool and it was just something i had never done before so i'm like let's try this out <laughs> and then i'm i'm dramaturging and assistant directing uh a play that an acting MFA student who's a dear, dear friend uh, has written and is performing in. So I can be sort of the outside eye uh, while she's on the inside of it. Um, and then I might have another project cooking uh, for right before graduation. I'm, I'm figuring that out right now. Um, and then I've also got things outside. Um, I'm thrilled to say my partner's actually gonna be going to USC for film school uh, <gasps> next year. Yay. Uh, so she and I are actually working collaboratively on a couple things with another acting alum from, hey. uh, from CalArts actually, uh, which I'll be able to share a little bit more. Actually, there's some stuff online, uh, with little like BTS stuff. It's called Goon. Um, and yeah, I'm actually really Instagram. pumped about it. Yeah, I'm really, it's, it's, it's super fun, super quirky. Um, we found a great cinematographer, Riley Shen who's just has an inspired eye. And so, yeah, just, I don't know, just finding myself in that moment of like, I think also out of frustration, maybe with CalArts at times, like I just want to get with the students here and make some shit. Let's just make well, some you shit wanna, together, you know? Like, I think your thing is you want to helm your own ship always. You want to kind of be in charge of your own <sighs> destiny. And which is a very good, I mean, I see you're making a face about it, but I, I'll, just for my part, I'm saying that's a very good quality to have. And it actually leads me to another question I was going to ask mm. you, which is, are you age-wise about there with your peers in this MFA no, program? and that's been Are interesting. you older or younger? Yeah, older, older, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm in my mid-30s, and that has been a, a an interesting difference of experience at times, yeah. Yeah, well, we've talked to a lot of MFAs who, because they were in their 30s, were able to see the whole thing about school in a much more objective way that allowed them to get more out of it personally for that thing, exact thing that you were mentioning earlier, which is I am paying you. So you're going to give me the education that I need as opposed to what you think I need. Well, and that's, oh my God, I, that would be a whole other episode because like, actually it's funny. I got waitlisted at a school, uh, that I now realize probably wouldn't have been a good fit because I had applied three times and it was it was somewhere where I had connections and I knew the person who run it, like we were sort of colleagues and she wouldn't let me in. And she finally was like, I think I owe you a coffee. And we went out for coffee and and she was like, you're so good at producing. You say, because it's the reason I gave you that face is because like, yeah, I, I, I'm ready to build. I like building, but I also am very tired of building. Um, and that's a conversation I'm actually really interested. I, I, I'm still a director, but I'm actually, the big thing I'm looking to pursue right now is development. I love dramaturgy. I love new plays. I love working with writers. And I love working with writers because I am not a writer. I have no ego about that. I have no competitiveness with that. I love the interrogation process. I love inquiry and being like, this is what I'm getting from it. Is this what you're after? Great. If not, what is it you're after? Ah, let's pick that apart. Like, and yeah, then you're a development go right. human. Yeah, I, I love it. 
feeds me. And so like, I'd love to not have to produce my own shit and find a way to just be in development for a while. But anyway, it's funny, this producing thing has come up because it's like, or like building my own stuff, helming my own stuff, because she was like, you know, you say you want to get out of producing, you say you want to break from this, but I don't think that's really what you want. And it really irked me. I really got pissed off about it because I was like, look, if you don't think I'm the right fit for your program, you're prerogative. You're the head of the program. But don't tell me that you know better than me what I want. I know what I want right now. There's actually, it's a part of me going, applying to grad school at this point in my career. And I think it's actually the biggest advice I give to anyone applying to grad school is like, have a clear idea of what you want. Like have a really clear why, if that makes sense. Like for me, I love Chicago, but I am sometimes, again, I say this with love, I'm frustrated by the Chicago style, by the dominance of the quote unquote Chicago style. I feel like, especially critically, a lot of things are are compared to Steppenwolf 30 years ago. A lot of things are compared to like quintessential 20th century American realism. And I love that shit. I just think there's also more. And I think like, like if you look at Chris Jones' review of Miss Black for President and Philip Dawkins' subsequent response, I feel like that's that's my issue in, in a nutshell right there. Um, so like, uh, 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 Fuck, I'm so sorry. I'm tired. No, like, that's okay. She, you, you, you didn't get into that school, and you were like, "Don't you. tell me what I thank want." Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. Don't like. Don't tell me that you know better than me what I want. I, I got frustrated with the Chicago style, and I was like, especially seeing Monty, who's a dear friend of mine, who's also an alum of CalArts, Monty Cole. Yeah. Um, he was expanding outside of that style, outside of the rigidity of that, in ways that were blowing my mind, and yet as a Chicago director, and this is the reason I love Chicago and the reason I'm grateful for a decade there, it it teaches you collaboration. Like it is a great place for, honestly, when you can find that true value of ensemble, the value of ensemble, that's what makes Chicago magical. And so like to be able to bring that collaborative energy to a vision like CalArts would cultivate. Like that was the goal. That was what I wanted to bring my my like ethical and collaborative value system to Polish avant-garde inspired shit. And so like, that was my why. So I was like, don't, don't tell me that you know better than me what I want right now. I have a very clear idea of what I want. And so, yeah, I'm going to pay money to get this thing that I want out of out of this program. It's just sometimes a shame to bring it back to the sort of ego and fear thing where where sometimes you have to be on your own at that. Like that's been sort oh, of part sure. of the CalArts yeah, experience. Like but I, I had to make academia, that experience. Yeah, right. That's, yeah. that's higher ed. I mean, I think that that's, it sucks, but it, it, it I'll, and I say this because every single person we talk to, this is the same thing at any school, at any time from 1993 to present day. This is an issue that exists in terms of ego, fear, change, reckoning. It's very tricky. And it's not our education, higher ed, especially system, is not set up to have the world, I think, any any kind of challenge to that system is is not we're not there yet. I don't know if we'll get there. But it's there, funny. But... It's funny. The ego thing is always interesting to me, though, because you brought up a, a, a word came up earlier that, that I forget which of you brought up, but one of you brought up the term legacy. That's always an interesting word. Yeah, that's always an interesting term in this to me, because I'm like, look, as I say, like, it's it's for me, like, am I conscious of it? Sure. Is it 
why? No, it's because I watched my dad impact people and I want to impact people. It's I was impacted by chorus line in a particular way and I want to impact people. But I'm like, for people who do care about that kind of ego in that particular way, wouldn't legacy matter in this? I'm like, it's it's my it's a particular curiosity I have because like if you were to like shift gears for a little bit and decide like, oh, I could make change, that will be your legacy. And isn't that a great legacy? And wouldn't that actually give it's your brilliant. ego all of the it's things brilliant. your ego is actually goddamn looking for? Like I just Yeah. The other thing is they're they're like any child, scared child. Yeah their fear will not let them until they reach the point where they face their fear and say, I'm scared of being obsolete, not listened to and alone and not being important in some but way. If you to evolve, somebody. then you're never obsolete. If you liked what you heard today, please give us a positive five-star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survived Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you.